The cream rises to the top. If you build it, they will come. Content is king, and so on. We've heard all the cliches, but the problem is they are totally wrong. Even the best idea, product or project will fall flat if it isn't communicated effectively. On the Figures or Speech podcasts, hosts Tammy Palazzo and Tim Wickstrom talk to a wide range of amazingly successful executives, business owners, and leaders about how learning to communicate changed their lives and their fortunes. Every episode gives us stories we can emulate and lessons we can follow. Welcome to Figures of Speech. We are your hosts, Tim Wickstrom and Tammy Palazzo. Our guest today is Franz Johansson, an author, entrepreneur, and acclaimed international keynote speaker. His debut book, The Medici Effect, available in 20 languages and was named one of the best books on innovation by Business Week and one of the top 10 best business books of the year by Amazon. His follow-up book, The Click Moment, was named top 10 best book of the year by Fast Company. Franz has advised some of the world's leading organizations such as the Walt Disney Company, Nike, IBM, Novartis, and he also works with startups, investment firms, government agencies, helping spread the Medici effect. Franz, thank you so much for joining us today. For our listeners that may not already be familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about the Medici effect and your approach to innovation with this innovative idea. Sure. Thank you for having me. So the Medici effect really relates to an era in history that goes back to the Renaissance. The Medici family was a family that ruled the city of Florence about 500 years ago. And they basically encouraged people to come together from different disciplines, architects, sculptors, uh, philosophers, painters, uh, Michelangelo, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, from all over Europe. And by bringing them to Florence, these creators were able to collaborate, build off each other's ideas, and create what became one of the most creative eras in Europe's history, the Renaissance. And so the book, The Medici Effect, which I wrote and was published about 14 years ago, essentially says that we have the best chance of breaking new ground when we step into an intersection of different fields or different cultures and the greatest innovations, the greatest ideas, the best uh, creative, the best stories, the best companies, the best scientific discoveries have all come from these top intersections. And it behooves us, hence, to search for them, to look for those places where we can connect ideas from different industries, different fields, different cultures. It's our obligation. <laughs> yes, if we want to see the world become a better place, I do believe it's our obligation. You know, it's amazing to me because this book that you're talking about, the idea and the origin from it, I mean, it's huge. It's been translated into 18 different languages. 20, actually. 20 as of... Uh, 20, 20. Yeah. All right. And the number will continue to increase, I'm sure. You have been brought in as a thought leader, subject matter expert, and idea generator yourself. How have companies brought you into their framework to help them evolve their businesses? Tell us a little bit about those experiences. You've been with American Express, worked with uh, startups, investment firms. Tell us how that comes in. Well, what's interesting about these set of ideas, which essentially can be encapsulated as the notion that diversity drives innovation. And it's an idea that scales. It works for you as a person. And how do you expose yourself to diverse experiences? It works as a team. And how do you, how do you create an ideal team to be as creative or 
or innovative as possible. You try to make it as diverse as possible. It works for companies. We've been able to really shift how companies like, for instance, a, a company like Disney, where we spent essentially 10 years, how they even think about the power of diversity in what they do. You are today seeing a company that is able to be essentially miles ahead of many of their competitors simply because they're thinking differently about the role that diversity plays innovative efforts. You can see it in, in products like the Black Panther and so on. But that's the process that we've been a part of driving for many, many years with them. Even nations, when you look at how do you, as a nation, how do you drive economic development? How do you drive it in, in regions and cities? How do you drive it in nations? There's, a, uh, there's an area in outside of Orlando called Lake Nona. It's a five, six billion dollar development currently growing rapidly. And this entirely its entire concept is based off of the Medici effect of bringing together people and, and companies from different uh, fields. This idea has taken hold all over the world, and it's been a crazy ride. How has that, your own philosophy around this, impacted your own career? In so many ways, basically. The, <laughs> I would say that perhaps if I'm going to pick one, I will talk about how I have looked to build uh, my company, the Medici Group. So we are essentially a consulting firm that helps other organizations upgrade their culture of innovation in this very particular way, in using diversity. And in order to do that, I need to create myself a firm that looked very different from any other consulting firm out there. It couldn't look like a McKinsey. It couldn't look like an IDO. It couldn't look like an, a marketing agency. And so when you when you walk into our company, you will probably experience the most diverse group of people that you ever would have met. They are look different, come from different places, have all kinds of different backgrounds. Some of them business, yes, but cover all kinds of other areas as well. And it is through that that we've been able to create a, uh, an offering that, that is unlike anything else in the world today. And that is the reason we've been able to be so successful with some of the top companies around the world. That's great. I've shared with you before this that I've had the experience of sitting in on one of your workshops, which was extraordinary. We used to, Tim and I used to work in the diversity space, so we're very connected to it from a, from a consulting perspective and from an ideas perspective. Since then, our business has shifted a lot, and we now are focusing very heavily on communication skills. And, you know, when we think about communication skills, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, there is this idea that there is sort of like a one, one prototype of individual that is the best way to communicate, like as if we're we're creating these robots, right? So if you make eye contact the right way and you use the right body language <laughs> and your voice is the right way, that you will become the perfect speaker. And what we always say is that becoming a really good speaker is about authenticity. It's about you being the best you that you can be. So let, let's shift a little bit and talk about you as a speaker and a communicator because that is such a big part of what has made you successful, the, your ability to communicate your ideas. Tell us a little bit about how that started for you. Were you the kind of person who, just from an early age, were really comfortable getting up and talking in front of people? Did you struggle with it at all? Give us a little bit of your background on that. Yeah, let me just first say that I couldn't agree more with how you framed this. To be successful as a speaker, as a presenter, ultimately, you have 
to be authentic. And I know that this word has taken on such a <laughs> grand meaning to almost lose it. It's used a lot. <laughs> it's used a lot. But let me just make one point as to why I believe that is true. And then we can sort of dig into how I arrived at that conclusion myself and what my journey was for that. What happens is that when you're, in a, when you're sitting in the audience and you're looking at somebody presenting, it's impossible for you to understand all of those pieces. I mean, you're kind of lucky if you walk away and remember one or two or possibly three things. And it's very difficult for you to even, even have a, an opinion about the veracity, about, about is this speaker real? Is what the speaker is saying true? Is it like, so all of these pieces are, are very difficult for you to have an opinion on. But what you can have an opinion on, what you're able to have an opinion on is whether or not the speaker, him or herself, is true to themselves. So if I don't believe that you are authentic, if I don't believe that you're true to yourself as a speaker when I'm in the audience, then how can I trust anything that you say? Right. And so this is why you can tell, you can sometimes tell when people go out and, and they've been trained in a very particular way that doesn't feel right for them, and it feels off somehow. There's, it's like it's a small glitch somewhere. And it just brings the whole thing, not up, but at best sideways and possibly down. Right. So I agree with the entire framing of this that you, that you set up here. But how did I get to this myself? So I've always been comfortable speaking. I think that has been true for me. But that's a very long way from becoming who I am today on stage. That has been a uh, path where you... I have to do a couple of things. Of course, number one, be willing to, let's just say experiment. I don't want to say fail, it scares people in this context. But you have to be willing to experiment. And, and what has to, I don't know when it happened, but there were a couple of different insights that, that struck me and has carried with me throughout. The first one is the authenticity piece. When I started out, this is right after the book came out, when I started doing this for in a, in a more sort of... Uh, of higher frequency. I try to figure out how should I be dressed? How should I act? I should perhaps be a bit more um, slower or more corporate and uh, pointing with my hands. I love this. <laughs> and so I did this for about two to three speeches. In my, ent my entire body was communicating to me that this was, this is not right. Something was off. And step by step, I became more willing to let sort of go of those preconceptions and become what I call an amplified version of myself. And so I would imagine, for instance, I would imagine that when I'm in front of, how would I speak to a person normally? So let's say that I'm sitting one-on-one -on -one at a cafe. How am I talking about my ideas then? And it would be filled with life and energy. I'd be excited about it. Right. I realized that, okay, I can't do exactly that because I'm literally actually maybe in front of a group of a thousand people. So we're not really at a cafe, but that piece needs to be on stage. So this is amplified version of myself where I try to figure out what are those pieces of this cafe, this one-on-one -on -one conversation, what are the pieces that transfer to the stage? And those are the ones that I want to amp up. And I realized that for me, I use my hands a lot, not in a controlled manner, but I'm using it even as I'm talking to you right now, my hands You're are- You're a gesture. Yep. I'm Very gesturing. expressive. Very expressive, right? So then one realizes that, that on stage, and that's a powerful way. When I communicate one-on-one, -on -one, that is a powerful way for me to communicate. So on stage, I just need to amplify it. In other words, I can actually do even wider gestures because people are further away. 
it's the biggest stage. And that's a one piece of me that is true to who I communicate. I took that piece and I amplified it. There's other aspects of what I do as well that go along those lines. So, but that's just one example. I would say big discovery for me and becoming comfortable about not trying to fit somebody else's script, but fitting mine and understanding precisely what those pieces are and amplifying those. Another piece was this notion that there's this idea that when you get on stage, people are looking, you think that people are kind of just waiting for you to fail, <laughs> waiting for you to like screw up. And so you get on there and you're like, okay, I got to hit it out of the park. But the truth is that no one wants to waste their time. And I figured also this out within my first year. No one. Everybody actually wants you to succeed. I mean, everyone. You walk out on that stage with 150 bonus points. Yes. And so I didn't, when I came to understand that, it changed my confidence level. One, like, you know, they've chosen to sit in, to listen to you one way or another. I mean, maybe they work for a company and they're part of it. But again, no one wants to feel like they wasted an hour. No. Yeah, they didn't walk into the room going, man, I hope he falls flat on his face. No, they want to say, I hope he's up. I can't wait to see that. We tell people that all the time, that they, no one shows up hoping you're going to fail. They're so happy. You're the one up there and it's not them. They want you to do well. (laughs) They want you to do well. That point about the authenticity and the batting around of that, I want to move past that a little bit because you said so many things in there. So I'm going to share with you my takeaway from your TEDx, but also, correlate into the strategy you just shared. So you're right. We're lucky when we're presenting if people leave with two, maybe three ideas. Here's what I learned from you. Diversity matters for idea idea creation. Uh, Innovators are executors. And then also, we're not very good at predicting outcomes. So we need a (laughs) plethora of ideas. And I walked away with those messages. When I take my hat off as an audience member and put my trainer hat on, I start to look at that and I wondered, you know, what with the strategy you just described and how you employed that for yourself. So you're comfortable talking in front of people, but you started testing things. I want to dig into that and say, what did you think of that you should test? And what was your litmus test if it was successful? How did you gauge whether that was a good idea or a not a good idea? That's a great question. And basically, I think it's fair to say that my strategy today is something like the following. Let's say that you develop the baseline talk, which you may be wanting to give. Uh, many of your audience probably are, are either have done this or are looking to do this. It's very easy to be very comfortable with that. You've sort of, you, you figured out where the funny parts are. You figured out whether you're going to hit it. You're going to figure out where, you, where you're doing all these elements around it. So to me, there is no talk I've I've never, this is literally true, I've literally never, ever given the exact same talk twice. Yes. Sure. Okay. So I am throwing in things that I want to test, but obviously I don't want to maybe do that with the entire talk. So I'm picking, maybe this is a new example I want to test. So I want to do a new introduction or I want to do a, even if it's the same example, I want to do it from a different direction. Sometimes I decide I don't necessarily recommend this for somebody starting out, but in the moment on stage, I'm going to do it differently. So I'm improvising. Right. And I'm looking to see if that works or doesn't work. But other times, plan it out, and then I want to see how it lands. Guess what? 
sometimes it doesn't land at all. <laughs> right. How do you know? How do you know though? What signals do you get that you're like, you know what? I tried it and I improvised. That didn't resonate. Or gosh, that was amazing. That did. Because we always tell people you get signals too from your audience. It's not just about you. That's but right. Part of being a great speaker is reading your audience. Is that part of your strategy to say that worked or didn't work? It is. Although I will say that I now I believe that you probably, if you want to be kind of quote unquote scientific about it, you kind of need to do it a couple of times because every audience is different. Yeah. So if you really want to genuinely know, then you need to do it a couple of times to actually know. So let's, which can be harrowing because let's say you tried something and it didn't really work. I'll give you an example of how this played out. So sometimes I open, I still do this sometimes today where I ask an audience, I put up some images on the screen uh, and I ask an audience to yell out the things to think of when they see this image. I used to do this a lot in the past, but now that's maybe do it in like one out of five or one out of six talks that I, that I open with. And at one point I decided that I wanted to have some cool, up, like heavy bass background music while that was going on. Loudly playing, boom, 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 kind of like that. Why? I, I thought it was a good idea. The truth was actually, <laughs> I had seen, I got the idea watching some segment on CNBC where they just have this massively <laughs> loud music playing all the time when people are talking. And I'm like, well, it seems to kind of, they seem to think it works. Maybe it works. So that was basically the extent of my thought process. I added it on and it ran through. And uh, afterwards, I kind of went out and I was asking, so I was asking people about the opening and they were like, well, that was it was a distraction. Oh, okay. So I shouldn't do that again. But then I noodled it and I, and I did it for a while. I, for a year, I didn't, I didn't do anything like that. But as I, thought, I kept on coming back to this idea and I realized that maybe, maybe what I did was, it was just too loud. Maybe if I had it in, ah. a, in a different way. So then I tried it again, but this time I, I kind of had it as a much lower volume. Imagine a soundtrack for a movie now kind of like a background yes. you, you can barely hear it but it's there very different reaction interesting so now what was happening was the people were like wow that was the coolest thing ever <laughs> so, so what i'm saying now is right you have to be prepared to screw up but you should do it in a very small part of your speech so you make sure your 90 95 percent works and then then you introduce these things but even if it screws up don't assume that you know why. Tweaking it just a little bit can be, make all the difference. And perhaps the number one place for this place out is when it comes to being funny on stage. I mean, the difference oh, between, humor. Oh, my God. <laughs> the difference between getting the intonation this way or that way can be the difference between being funny or not. And, and so all of these elements come into uh, to it. And I, basically, I would encourage those that are listening to this to constantly experiment all the time but to do so with small chunks so you're comfortable with the rest of it but these experiments are only going to make you better that's how you develop that's how you evolve what's your practice or your ritual for practicing what do you do you mean before a before, before a talk? you give a talk so you're experimenting in the talks but how are you prepping for the talk, uh, obviously, if you're doing something that you've done a lot of times, you may not need as much practice, but it, let's say you have something new that you're working on or a different type of talk, what do you typically do from a practice perspective? So the, the fact is I actually kind of practice in some ways all the time. And what I mean by that is that let's say that I'm walking, I live in New York City, I walk from the subway 
back to my uh, home here, like maybe a sort of a five, six minute walk. And in that, I might be thinking through a segment of a talk. I might be thinking about a segment. I might be thinking about a, an example that I want to give in a talk. I might be thinking about a new way of introducing a, a different theme. And I'm going through that in that walk. Then maybe I will do nothing with it. Or maybe I'll think this is a great idea. I'll make, take some notes. And three days later, there's another, I may be in a cab. I'm doing the same thing. I'm thinking about this. And to me, the reason why that is the most effective way of practicing. And let me just add the last piece. Let's say that I find something that I like. Then I can actually keep on going back and doing it over and over again in that way. And the reason why it's effective for me, and I'm not saying it should work for everybody. The reason it works for me is that it allows me to get into the truth of that particular segment of a, of a talk. And uh, what I try to stay away from personally is I don't actually practice the specific words of what I, I'm going to say in a particular sort of script, for instance. I know for many people, this is a strategy that they take and that makes them feel comfortable. So to the degree that that works for whoever's listening to that, I think they should stick with that. But for me, it is about understanding the truth of an example, understanding the truth of a story or a point that I want to make. And so that by the time I get on stage, I, that's why I can't improvise because I've been kind of working, working my way through this probably five, six times already. And so I get on stage and I think this is actually a great time to introduce this new theme. Maybe there's no slide for it. It doesn't have to be because I'm going to introduce it right now. Well, it's not the first time I'm doing it. I've done it on these subway rides maybe five, ten times Half before. a dozen times. Yeah. 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 I want you to think about this differently. So you have, you've built a really deep subject matter expertise on what you talk about. I mean, it's, it's everything, right? It's so embodied in everything that you do. It's your business, you know, whenever you're talking in this conversation, it's so, it oozes out of you. I want you to think about this a little bit differently. Imagine if we put your TED Talk up on the screen right now and we turn down the volume. Yeah. So we didn't hear any of the content that was coming out of it. And we were just looking at you. And I wonder when you think about that and I always encourage people to do that exercise for yes. themselves because Great. I think it's important to, to consider there's research that we always quote and it's, it's the fundamentals of the product that we've built and the way we teach, which is the way people experience us has very little to do with the words that come out of our mouth. 93% uh, of how we experience people is what we see and what we hear in terms of the tone of their voice, their volume, their use of filler words, things like that, which is why when people who are not experienced like you are get trained, they're getting trained on all the things that you were talking about before. You know, how do I use my body? So it's interesting because when I was watching your TED Talk, the thing that struck me the most is your movement, right? Yes. You have Agreed. so much energy in your body and it comes out in so many different ways and it's so interesting to hear you talk about how you perceive yourself that you knew that you want to amplify the guy that you are in this situation when you get on stage and the way that you do it is you move around a lot you gesture a lot but i wonder if you ever stop and really reflect upon that and say i really want to see myself not so much the content that i'm saying because there's no question that you know your content but physically how you're coming across to an audience so I do. And I let me tell a quick story that gave me this 
insight and then how I think about this. I gave a talk a bunch of years ago now in Chicago. It was in a decommissioned church. I think you can do that. Like somebody goes in and like exercises. This is no longer really a church. Right, right, right. <laughs> so the thing about that though was that uh, the sound engineers had completely misplaced the speakers. It was awful because of the because of the the internal design of the church. It meant that if you when you sat behind a particular row, you couldn't actually hear what was said on stage. Now, I was the opening speaker, and so obviously it became obvious once I was done that this was the case, and they had to go in and reshift things. But for my speech, the vast majority of the audience could not hear it because it was echoing way too much in the church. Now, <laughs> I didn't know this, of course. So I come out, <laughs> and there's a book signing afterwards, That's and, a good no thing. One, and no one is telling me this. Right, so I'm signing books and this guy comes up and he goes, that was great, it was phenomenal. And he just goes on and on. I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you very much, okay. Uh, then i like, well, what part did you like? Well, actually, I couldn't hear any of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's awesome. <laughs> so I, what do you mean? I need then explain it. And when he was starting to talk about it, everybody else chimed in. I heard like, oh yeah, yeah, it's like, so, so what are you talking about? Like, how can you, how do you feel it was great? Oh, I mean, look, he said you had, even at that time I had super simple slides, right? So very simple graphics, one, two, three words possibly, right? I knew the theme you were talking about, right? It's about diversity and it's about innovation. But what I got from you was the energy. And absolutely. I think that these topics are so, so you're absolutely right. Um, that is a huge piece. But what I will say again about the authentic piece is that. So for me, moving on stage is super important. Ever after that, ever since that happened, which was also early in my career, maybe 2006 or something like that. So, so it's stuck, it's been, it sticks with me today. I, I think about that conversation like all the time. But the fact is that there are people that can communicate by not moving around so much. But they do move certain pieces. So if you, another great speaker, I've done many, many talks together with him, Sir Ken Robinson, he's an educator. He's done a very, you know, highly viewed TED video as well. But when you look at him, he stands on the exact same spot on stage throughout the entire talk. He doesn't move his legs. He can't. He has had polio. So his, his, his feet are planted on stage. His, up, his body essentially is not moving much either. It's his head that moves. And when he accentuates things he raises his eyebrows his, his, he, he uses a voice but what is really happening is that that the, the minimalist approach for him which is authentic to him means that when he does make a movement it just has a huge effect a profound impact because profound it's small impact. but it just explodes and here's the thing i was just going to say to this i've done essentially the thing in reverse so there are now let's say i give a one-hour speech there are moments when i would stay completely still not move an inch and make a point. And that will then amplify the impact there because I'm now running counter to the expectation audience put up as to how I'm communicating. I mean, you have so clearly articulated authenticity because truth be told, if you walked into a coaching session with me and I just watched you do what you do, I'd probably tell you to slow down. I'd probably say, you know, stop moving across the stage so much. It can become very distracting, but you make it work for you. You make it work. So when I do watch you, it's not my preference. I don't particularly like movement because I'm someone who doesn't move as much, 
but you make it work for you. And this other guy is making what he does work for him. No matter what, we own our delivery. We own how we do it. If I gesture a lot, I know that technically that's maybe not the best thing to do, but you're owning it. And I, what you're saying there is so pinpoint. I gave a talk one time and the, the, there was a, the speaker that followed a woman that had a phenomenal message, but she's like, she came up to me. She said, what, we got like a half hour break. What you did was amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to emulate. I'm like, well, Don't. no. Okay. So then she went up on stage and she was moving the same way and it just felt wrong. It does. It does. <laughs> so anyway, we, yeah. it, it, I got to jump in on that because we hear this all the time when we're training and people have these archetypes that they want to yes. embody and become. Tony Robbins or whatever. It's, yeah. Yeah. Bill Clinton. It's kind of like the goal you stated, like I want to sell winter, for example, and the pathway was so different, right? And that's what we tell them. What's confident to one person can come across as arrogant to somebody else. That's but what right. we're reading, what the what the audience is reading is that visual and vocal elements. They're making assessments based off what they see and how the person sounds. And the authenticity comes through the deep subject matter expertise. But we, I'm with you, and it's really what we align with, which is we try to talk about these in general are things you should probably avoid doing, and everything else is fair game. Uh, it's to help you figure out what's the best you so that you're confident sharing your idea. So look, because I, I agree with that. It turns out, right, that there are guidelines that are helpful, particularly when one starts out. Yes. But as one gains confidence, I think it is important to then start questioning the guidelines. The guidelines are there to get you started. So I'll give you another guideline around presentation that you hear often. Let's just put it this way. Uh, no deck that you if say they use PowerPoint or Keynote or something to right. present with, you should not use 160 slides. Okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> you shouldn't use 20 slides. Agreed. Well, guess what? I do. Now, if you see me talk, you know that the pace that I, the first 90 seconds of my speech, I've covered 40 slides. So this is something that I wouldn't recommend anyone to start out with. Oh, yeah. No. I got you oh, started. my gosh. No, I'm we would never start. teach that. Epic no, fail. No, uh, epic fail. And in fact, when they say, like, oh, I want to do, I'm, I said, look, here is the time where I would say there are guidelines, and they're, they're there for a good reason. It's because you are going to weigh, bury yourself way too deep on any individual slide. It's going to bore the audience. Like you just, you have, they're, they're guys are there for a reason, basically. And that is true also why you present yourself on stage. But as one gains confidence, and as one begins to feel that I'm beginning to understand what my voice is and what my style and presentation is, I think that step by step, one can begin to push the boundaries. And in ways that certainly I would perhaps never do because it doesn't work with me. You know, some people go to me and say, why don't you do this unplugged? No slides. This is what particularly popular at one point, right? We should just have right. no slide decks. No visuals. And I tried that and I realized at one point that yeah, it worked great, uh, but then I became to, started to understand what my philosophy is around this because I was like, well, yeah, but if I go to the movies, for instance, do I want to watch a silent movie, <laughs> black and white? <laughs> I mean, I could. It doesn't mean, it's, I mean, Charlie Chaplin has great stuff out there. 
But I mean, in general, I want to use the techniques and technologies that are available to me. So I would look at, it would have CGI, it would be in color, it would have sound, it would have have all these things because, you know, net, net, it will be a more interesting movie that way. You can do more things with that way. So for me, I've now added all kinds of other elements. I, I have sound. Sure. I, I scored a soundtrack. I, I work with a, with music producer to create now sound that un, that is underneath my segments of my talk. I have visuals that are super simplistic and, and large. I have I now use moving imagery, right? So video snippets instead of still images, video snippets. But I only do them if. I, if there's a one-screen talk, these are things that you learn. If it's a two-screen talk and moving images, the audience eyes will dart back and forth between you on stage. But you, you've evolved. You've yeah. evolved. Yes. You would yeah. never have started. And you said it yourself. Never. You would never have started out that, no. that way. You could never have been able to master that when you were early in your speaking career because you had to get more confident. You had yeah. to understand how you work. And to your point, you continually test things out to see what works. But, you know, someone who's listening to you right now shouldn't be like, hey, let me no, see if I can never, soundtrack never, my, never, my that, talk. Exactly. Because they've got to figure out what to do with their hands, right? The exactly. what, you about, oh. what, what you've actually done, though, I love that. And what you've done, though, is you've not really, in my opinion, you've not really broken the rules. What you've recognized is where you trade off, right? So if I have 40 slides, you recognize that content the articulation part needs to be very poignant, direct, and minimal. So you're balancing one for the other, not really breaking rules. And I love that, but that's part of the evolution, right? Where you you have to recognize, and I think you do this very well based off what you said, as human beings, we have many senses, right? We're going to be visually inclined. It's great I mean, if you can do it without slides, but slides help articulate the message. It's the balance of all of it. I have to ask you one quick question, then I know we've, we've got a, yeah. a couple of questions that we'd like to ask before we wrap this up, just to get a little more about information about you. Here's my question. When was the last time you were nervous giving a presentation? Oh, I mean, truly nervous. Even slightly. You don't have to have a full meltdown, but slightly. Look, it seems like a simple question. I, in some ways, at this point, I'm not really... Nervous isn't the word I would use to describe the feeling that I have. I can say this. There are times when I am truly nervous, and it is one very specific instance that comes up every once in a while. And I oh, wow. can't remember when it happened. Yes. And it is when it becomes obvious to me that what how I have prepped for this talk and what I've been told for me that this talk should be prepped for and what has been told to the audience that this talk was going to be about is completely different. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's one of those things where I remember this one time when I prepared for an innovation talk and the presenter that introduced me, the moderator introduced me as sharing the future trends of the insurance industry. Oh. And then I'm getting on stage. So I'm getting on stage. I was shaking. That's the tea. <laughs> it's like, welcome. Insurance industry. I mean, like, I had spent, <laughs> there's been not a word about the insurance industry had ever been uttered to me in the prep. And so here I am. I had to, in the moment, try to figure out a way to bring these two things together. And, and so the advice is make sure that there's a complete alignment. I mean, <laughs> prep. prep is key. On that. Love prep that. is key. Yeah. Prep is key. Yeah. That makes me nervous. Otherwise, I'm mostly nowadays, now that I've gone through all these early years, excited. I'm excited. This is an opportunity to share insights that I've gathered over many, many years to people. You know, it could be a 
20, could be tens of thousands. It's a blessing. It's, it's a blessing. I consider myself incredibly fortunate, incredibly lucky to be able to do this. So excitement is the feeling that I have. That is the dream, right? That's what we want everybody to, you know, the people who say, and so many people say, I hate it. It's the last thing I want to do. It's awful. And, and I myself overcame like major, major fears of speaking in public and now love it. And I always say to people, it's exactly the same thing. It's a real opportunity for me to share my ideas now. Like I love every time Anytime anyone says to me, can you give a talk? Yes, 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 yes. Because I love the opportunity to get in front of people and to hear their feedback and to see the looks on their faces and to see them get excited about things. So, you know, the audience really makes it for us and a good audience can really create a great situation. A bad audience can also, you know, challenge us. So, I mean, okay. (laughs) Uh, Now now that you mentioned that, I will say there there are elements that will certainly not make me excited. And there are good audiences and there are bad audiences. I mean, there are for sure. And so knowing, like, let's say that you are part of the lineup, for instance, which, you know, can often be the case. And you're not first, so you don't really have a sense of what the audience is. You stay second. And you seeing that the first person out there, or maybe there's a panel, but whatever, it's, I mean, it's just no engagement. I mean, it's like... It is engagement. Yeah, totally. And then you're like, oh my God, I'm going to go up next. What do I need to do? But what happens, what I try to do to overcome that feeling, so that will make me nervous. But what happens is my mind then shifts into, okay, what is it now? It becomes a problem that I have to solve for. How do I get this audience to, how do I move the needle with the audience? How do I, do I need to reach out? So for instance, I mean, again, this is maybe not something I should do on the first try, but maybe I should start by jumping off stage, walking into the audience, and simply try to make a more personal connection. Yes. I know we are losing you right now, so if we can just have one minute to do a rapid fire. Let's do it. We can talk to you all day. I I have like thousands more questions. I've not got nearly enough time. Here's our rapid fire that we like to ask all of our guests. Just a couple of questions. It sort of iterates back from the days when we used to talk about, you know, what's on your nightstand? What are you reading? Want to know what you're reading, what you're listening to. So tell us, What's the last great book that you read? I read a book called Bad Blood. I just finished it last week. It's about Theranos and the massive yes. fraud oh, and scam. That, love it. Talk about a sales job. Oh, my God. I mean, it was, it, and it's a terrific book. I mean, this, this guy, the author, he, uh, he really was able to get a lot of uh, insight insight. So I think it was, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great story around the rise and fall of something. And, just, and it tells the story of how far you can go Love that. Love that. What are some of your favorite podcasts that you're listening to, aside from ours, which is now going to become your favorite? <laughs> I am now into, I have shifted. So I'm starting to work on my third book. So I'm listening to podcasts that are more storytelling and orientation. There's the, there was the new season of Serial that I'm working my way through. And what I love about that is, and same on Netflix, by the way, I'm kind of looking at, at these type of uh, ways of telling real kind of factual stories, but in a true storytelling manner. I'm yep. trying to see if there's things I can pick up from that. So that's been my focus right now. Awesome. Great. I would love to talk to you more about that in terms of your own, in your own world, because I think that I loved, and when I saw you in person and, and seeing your TED Talk, the storytelling piece of it, 
is the part that I think pulls everybody in. Your background is such an important part of the story. And if we had more time, I'd want to dig into that a little bit in terms of, you know, what would have happened if you couldn't communicate all of that about yourself? Like that gives you so much credibility. Storytelling, we believe, is really where it's at. And what we know to be true is that too many people are too afraid to even speak. And if they can't tell their story, what are we as a society losing if all these stories aren't being told? And you're right, podcasts, every great Netflix show is really telling a story, so much more nonfiction. We're learning all these things about people. And that's really, that's really the message that we're trying to communicate is we want to build a world of more confident speakers, not because we could create these robots of perfect speakers, but the people feel the confidence to do what we're doing, to be able to go on yes. and be vulnerable, tell your story, share it. You're sharing your story. There's someone out there that's going to listen to this that says, I love what he's doing. I would love to be able to jump off the stage and go out into the crowd or get up and try all these new things and be confident and fearless about doing it. And that's really what this is all about. I hope that is. Or I want to show up at my team. I want to show up my team meeting or my executive meeting yes. and confident enough to share my idea. It's putting the framework into action and some, how many great ideas are left on the table because people are just too scared to share it. Yeah. That, knowing that we're running a bit short on time here, but I, I just want to address this because it's, first of all, it's great the work that, that you guys are doing in getting people to become more comfortable about sharing their stories. That's the first thing. I think it's, that is huge. The second piece is that the way people often think about speaking is that they actually try to sanitize it from their own stories. Oh, yes. it's not about me. It's not, no, you're the one up there. Like, is anybody yeah. else up there? <laughs> no, it's, it's literally all about it's you. It's all about <laughs> you. <laughs> now, yes, you have other concepts you want to share, but why does this matter to you? Why do you think this is important? Like, like right. how did you arrive at this particular place? They don't have to dominate everything. My opening, the one you're talking about now here in terms of that, I share my own background story, it's 90 seconds of how I tell this, mm-hmm. but it makes all the difference. And I mean, totally, all of it, like totally, like, oh my God, I got it's your back. Everything. everything, everything. And in that, here's another nugget. In those 90 seconds, I have, out of those 40 slides or so, I have one slide uh, that shows, I kind of say this, you know, I started a software company, which did great until it didn't. <laughs> this thing where the graph that goes up and then goes down. It's yeah, a laugh that. line. It's a laugh line. But here's what people have told me over and over again. It's literally only about a second or two. But in those two seconds, I expose a failure right off the bat. Yep. And people remember it. Yep. And it's, they now believe, and it's true, that I'm going to tell it the way it is. because. I am not trying to go out there and say that this is all smooth and perfect. Yep. And it is so interesting to me. It's relatable. It's humanizing. so much time than polishing, trying to polish and make it all smooth and perfect. When what actually cuts through the noise are the more jagged edges, right? The vulnerability. The more vulnerable we are, the more authentic we are, the more believable we are, the more people want to hear what we we have to say, and the more confident we become in the end. Franz, we are so grateful for your time today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. you. We loved having you on the podcast and we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for the extra time. Thank you very much. This is great and I enjoyed the conversation as well. 